Good morning. Joining me now from somewhere in Heartland, Minnesota, is our good friend Al Bat. Good morning, Al. Hey, good morning, Karen. Good morning, everyone. I hope you're all having the best day you've ever had. I uh, I want to thank everybody at the uh, First Presbyterian Church in Mankato and the Pelican Breeze. Had a wonderful time with uh, both of those folks. And uh, uh, I got another... Uh, I think it's from the same person, so uh, this is my last one of the year, so I think they've asked every time. Uh, September 10th, I'll be on the Pelican Breeze for the last time, and that's uh, 383-7273 and Farming of Yesteryear in Keister on September 9th. I watched a murmuration of starlings, and it moved as if it were, oh, inside a lava lamp, which made me think of hummingbirds. And I know, why would you look at starlings and think of hummingbirds? That's because it's a small world after all. In Minnesota, there are four native plant species, eastern columbine, Indian paintbrush, jewelweed, and the cardinal flower that rely on hummingbirds for pollination. So if there weren't hummingbirds, they're not going to make it. The ruby-throated hummingbird is our hummingbird here, and its wings beat an amazing 53 times every second. Uh, You know, when you go to your CrossFit folks, see if you can match that there. (laughs) And its heart throbs 1,260 times a minute. Do not try to match that. I mention all this because I had a pleasant visit with Donald Mitchell and Ron Windingstad at the wonderful Henderson Hummingbird Hurrah in Henderson, Minnesota. And Mitchell, Don Mitchell, he conducts field studies of hummingbirds and the plants they pollinate, and he's a hummingbird bander. And you can imagine how small those bands are. They're just incredibly small, and he has to be patient and steady. And he said if you want to attract hummingbirds, it's best to create a nectar farm. So you you need to raise nectar, like farmers raise corn and beans. And this nectar farm has to maximize the amount of nectar available, of course. And one way to do this is to plant many red tubular flowers that bloom in mid to late summer. And advertise your nectar farms. So you put out a lot of red flowers, red on the hummingbird feeders, red wherever you can put it. And he has seven hummingbird feeders located outside his home near Red Wing. And in September, he goes through a gallon and a half of nectar every day, a gallon and a half. And he said, according to him, and uh, we have preached this also, uh, adding red dye or boiling the water, especially red dye, is not necessary. Some people like boiling the water. I don't think it's necessary. And the reason I don't, and Donald said the same thing. He said, if you make the water that good by the time the first hummingbird or two have dipped their bills in it, it is just not that pure water anymore. It's got other things in there. And you can create the solution by mixing four parts of water with one part of table sugar. You don't need to be too strict with those measurements. You know, three to one or five to one could be used, so you can just kind of measure with your eye. 
and don't have to get right down there. Does it matter if it's, uh, he, it's treated with? Uh, if does it matter if it's treated like soft water that's got the the salt in it? Because I've heard like you shouldn't put it over plants too much because it can build up salts. Does that harm hummingbirds as well? You know, I've never heard that it does. And I uh, I live out in the country, so we have well water, and there's nothing in there. Uh, uh, that we have some soft water that comes in uh, thanks to uh, folks with a water softener, but it, it's never been a problem. Okay. So, And I know a lot of people, they just feel more comfortable boiling it and more power to you. But, you know, if you're in a rush or something one day, I don't. I think you're going to be all right without doing that. And this will be right up your alley here, uh, Karen. He listed some hardy perennials that are native to Minnesota that thrive in Zone 4 uh, that are good for hummingbirds. Uh, columbine, red buckeye. I'm familiar with buckeye, but I, I don't really know what red buckeye is. Uh, coral bells, trumpet honeysuckle, and royal catchfly. And bee balm, he says, is good because its runners can be transplanted in spring, summer, or fall. The native monarda, which I really like, it attracts pollinators but is often overlooked by hummingbirds. Tall larkspur, standing cypress, cardinal flower uh, are other great choices. Anise Kissup is a native plant that's perfect, again, for pollinators, but maybe not the best for hummingbirds. And he said these perennials form the backbone of a hummingbird garden, and in order of bloom, good things to have in the garden, eastern columbine, it's native and hardy, then coral bells, then bee balm. He said you want to select a red-flowered, mildew-resistant mm. cultivar, then tall larkspur, and I know larkspur is also pollinated by bumblebees. And then royal catchfly and then cardinal flower, one of my favorite flowers. And he said for annuals, salvia is just a, a great one. He said you'd probably want to avoid fall-blooming salvia. Uh, scarlet sage is an excellent choice. Uh, flowering tobacco isn't red, but is a fine hummingbird plant as long as the scented species and hybrids are avoided as they're moth-pollinated and short on nectar because of that. And propagating annuals such as salvia, flowering tobacco, and standing cypress are quite is quite easy to do. Hummingbirds love jewelweed. And if anybody's out walking around, look for jewelweed, you'll find hummingbirds. His problem, uh, Donald Mitchell said, when he plants jewelweed, the deer eat it all. So a lot of us know it as spotted touch-me-not. I have a whole hillside of, of the jewelweed, and, and if it's just at the right stage, if you walk through it, you feel like you're getting shot with BBs because they just shoot off their little seeds right at you, and it's just the, fun, just the funniest you thing do. if you're not expecting it. It's like a whole bunch of grasshoppers all of a sudden launching themselves at you. And hence the name spotted touch-me-not because, yeah. boy, you touch <laughs> it, and it just throws them out there. And, you know, I walk in parks and trails and things, and the jewelweed is all there. It doesn't appear that deer are eating it all no. at all. But I've talked to a lot of folks that put it in their yards. They oh. say the deer come and eat it. Really? So I guess they like the, I don't know why they like it. it. It looks better to them if it's near a house, I guess. He uh, 
also mention some vines that are really good hummingbird plants, trumpet or coral honeysuckle, trumpet vine, scarlet runner bean, I really like that plant, cypress vine, and cardinal creeper. And then uh, talk to Ron Windingstad. He's a friend from way back. He's a chimney swift expert. And people refer to chimney swifts as flying cigars due to their short, stout bodies and these long, pointed wings. And they breed across much of eastern North America. They nest and they roost in chimneys, but changes in chimney construction and the development of modern heating methods, they've reduced the availability of nesting and roosting sites for Swiss, and consequently their numbers. And Windingstead has helped construct over 100 artificial chimneys, uh, chimney swift towers, and I remember him doing a cartwheel whenever he saw chimney swifts. I got a... <laughs> On Ron's behalf, he was very, very good at it, but he says he's probably not doing that anymore. So it was fun being with Ron and Donald, a couple of great guys. I want to say happy birthday to Jim Loggison, Karen, who is Ellendale Jim, ah. who uh, is a good supporter of KMSU. And a happy anniversary to Jim and his wife, Nancy. I was invited to their big celebration but I was unable to make it because I haven't found out a way to be two places oh. at once as yet. And I, I just uh, I wish I could have been there. I talked. I hadn't been hearing many cicadas. As of August 21st, I started just hearing them like crazy. So I guess they were just late in my yard this year. Jackie Smith of Belle Plaine sent me a uh, photo or uh, video of a giant swallowtail butterfly. Art Straub of Lesseur said he's been counting chimney swifts dropping into a local school chimney every evening since August 1st through heat and storm, nighthawks every evening calling and swirling. The number of swifts seemed to correspond with the number of nighthawks. Sunset of August 21st yielded eight nighthawks, 717 swifts, plus mosquitoes and smaller insects. Nighthawks do not appear to be in a migratory mood yet. So um, it, Art's been doing that for a long time. It's interesting, if you look at these school chimneys or creamery chimneys, and you think, what a huge chimney. There's 717 swifts uh, roosting in there. When they're nesting in there, there'll only be one pair in there. Really? So they need a lot of chimneys. What is it about the chimneys that attracts them? I mean, we don't, like you said, really have chimneys that, that we use anymore. And could you build your own to attract some? Yep, yep. Ron's got the plans for it if anybody wants to do that. I know a number of uh, oh, nature centers and parks have done that. Some have had success and others not so much. It just uh, I don't know how they decide. What's a good chimney? What's a good location? I've asked Ron about this for a long time, if he's come across the secret sauce, so to speak, that makes a chimney look good. Is it facing or is it in a certain corner of a lot? Is it exactly this height? And he said no. He hasn't found anything. It doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to it, and only the... Only the Swifts seem to know. Huh. And I was wondering, too, should it look like the old 
old-time chimneys, like the school and creamery chimneys, or can you make it look like something else? And so they're trying a lot of different ways. And I love seeing chimneys, swifts. They're just really neat birds. Uh, Gunner Berg of Albert Lee, he has a backyard with a water feature with running water. And he has become a place where warblers stop to for refreshment. And he's had uh, just one day he had black and white Wilsons, red starch, chestnut sided, uh, black throated green. Had a lot of different uh, warblers in there. Bryce Gaudian of Hayward, he saw a Canada. Uh, black-throated green and Wilson's warblers. Deb Chance of Albert Lee was seeing great egrets. Karen Frydendahl of Mankato seeing uh, green herons from out the window where she lives. Uh, Jack May of Mankato asked, what do kingfishers eat? Uh, belted kingfishers will feed on small fish, usually less than four to five inches long, probably pretty small fish. They'll eat crayfish, frogs, tadpoles, aquatic insects. A uh, couple asked, uh, why are the squirrels gnawing on my deck? Well, your uh, card playing is probably too noisy for them, <laughs> so they're going to get rid of it. And if it's not a card deck and they're chewing on the deck of your house, then they're not eating it but they are gnawing it to wear down their teeth, oh. which grow constantly. And they can't go to the dentist to get their teeth filed, which would be wise but painful. Uh, horses, I remember as a kid, people would uh, file off horses' teeth sometimes. They, I watched squirrels gathering acorns here the other day. And it was it was interesting. They gather it up, and it's like they're making a mental map in their mind where they're going to put all these acorns. The acorns from the white oak family are the tastiest. So like our bur oaks here, that's what squirrels, they love those. Uh, red oak acorns, they're nutritious, but they're intensely bitter because they have more tannin. And research has found that squirrels eat about 85% of the white acorns, so that's the bur oak trees, and then they cache 60% of the red acorns. Oh. And they do that, there's another reason, the white oak acorns sprout in the fall, so they're more perishable. So if you're burying a white oak acorn, by the time you dig it up next year, it's probably no good. Red oak acorns don't germinate until spring. So those would be the ones you'd want to save. So you'd want to eat the tasty ones now next spring when you're hungry and just, boy, you've dreamed of acorns all winter. You dig up those red oak acorns and they'd be good to eat. So it's uh, squirrels are amazing creatures. I uh, read something recently about uh, in the Twin Cities, uh, Theodore Worth decided to get rid of all the red squirrels and replace them with gray squirrels. So he had his uh, park rangers shoot red squirrels and everything and brought in gray squirrels. And now, of course, you go to the Twin Cities and there's a preponderance of gray squirrels everywhere. But at one time he thought that the red squirrels, I guess to put it kindly, were uh, little devils. And just uh, he needed to have a squirrel that was more friendly and 
people friendly, but we've discovered that, uh, you know, gray squirrels have their issues too, like the ones chewing on this uh, this couple's deck. Those were gray squirrels. But they are, uh, I saw one splooting the other day where they just fall right on the trail with their legs splayed out. It was on that day when it was 93 or whatever it was. And they were just trying to, trying to get their belly on something cool so it would uh, cool the entire entire squirrel and I, you know squirrels i've never i don't know that i've seen one that i could be sure was smiling but this one sure <laughs> did look like he was smiling and just saying this is don't you wish you could do this and for a little while i did wish i could do that uh somebody says i'm an old farm boy and i like mnemonics for birds What's a mnemonic for a metal lark? And a mnemonic is uh, where we just have a saying that reminds. It's a sequence of words to help us remember something. And the eastern metal larks is, I do love you, spring of the year. They have a beautiful whistle. The western metal larks is, hip, hip, hurrah, boys, three cheers. (laughs) Hip, hip, hurrah, boys. Three cheers, a rich, bubbly call. It, uh, oh gosh, you know I can, uh, I can sit down with a, a bunch of fellas in uh, in a rural community, and I'll say, when's the last time you heard a metal arc? And they will come up with stories galore about uh, when they were kids, boys, and listening to the metal arcs, and they don't hear them anymore. And they say, why don't we hear them anymore? And I said, well, we're we're corn and beans, and that's not a. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't do well in that. They like hay ground. And then we have so many, we have so many predators out there. After the metal arc eggs, they nest on the ground, so it's just got to be really hard for them. Prairie's gone away. Uh, it, they just have a lot of things that are working against them. But I have been out to South Dakota and Nebraska and seen flocks of metal arcs in the spring of the year. And on occasion, I'll see them here in the winter. Uh, not very often, but uh, they'll come here. And why they stay here, nobody knows. I'm sure they were asking themselves the same question a lot when the weather get really cold. But I love seeing metal arcs, and I know I'm not alone in that because uh, at least once a week, Karen, I hear somebody saying, I just don't hear metal arcs anymore so it uh, it's amazing how much a bird and actually in this case probably the bird's song means to us uh, a listener said why do red tail hawks soar in circles uh, hawks often travel on thermals or rising air currents to conserve energy and a thermal is this column of warm air that rises from the ground and the heat from the sun causes the air to rise and a hawk rides the thermal upwards staying in the air for long periods without expending much energy and this allows them to hunt over large areas so that's what a red tail is doing very often up there he has that keen eyesight He's up there hunting, and he flies in these circles so he doesn't have to burn up all the energy. And then when he spots its prey, it dives and catches it with his sharp talons. So it's all part of his hunting process, and they're amazing hunters dive down from this one wasn't circling. He was on a utility wire 
Delaney went into the ditch. I don't know what he got, but uh, he got something because he spread his wings around it, and that's uh, called mantling. And why does he do that? Well, in case there's another hawk around. The other hawks say, what's Ralph got over there? And might come over and bother him and try to steal it or pirate it from him. So he wants to just cover it up and make sure nothing sees that. And then he'll kind of look around and say, okay, then I can go ahead and eat this. He, um, They're not very good at sharing other than with their young ones. They will certainly do there. But this time of year, sharing isn't such a big deal anymore. They just want that food. They want to eat it. And then they want to go take a nap somewhere. It's kind of, they have a lot of human characteristics. So eat a lot and then take a nap. But it's uh, beautiful to see them. A listener says, thanks for KMSU. I'll second that. How many times will a house sparrow nest each year? It seems like they're nesting always. You know, they could have two, maybe three broods a year, and they'll build nests so close to one another sometimes that the neighboring nests will share walls, and they often reuse their nests. So because of all these things, it looks probably like they're just nesting constantly, but it could be another pair of birds right next to the the first nest. So they're coming from the same areas. But they, they are chronic nesters i guess i remember one year and i remember the date december 7th because a guy bailed hay here oh wow it was so warm and uh he was on channel six news (laughs) out of austin and then they came over and there was a guy bailing or cutting hay rather with a a horse-drawn mower they took film of that one he was on the next day and i watched uh, house sparrows building a nest in our barn and that was all on december 7th and then of course the weather just turned miserable it was a terrible winter because it just seemed like it was just saving it all up to get us later but it was uh, what an interesting that day was. Well, you to, know, to see all those things happening. I remember that day, December seventh, because I remember digging and planting tulip bulbs on a December seventh, the latest I've ever planted anything because it was super warm. And I'm like, well, I didn't plant these, so I might as well get them in. And and I did, and of course they just overwinter and come up the next spring. So I I do remember, but I don't know the year. Yeah, and I, I've got it written. You know, I have everything written down. I'm a chronic note taker, which is really good. The problem is when you have everything written down in <laughs> notebooks is finding what year it was anyway. Yeah. Because you, you, you don't remember, and I don't have a uh, any kind of table of contents or any kind of thing so I can look up when that was. But I, I know Gordy Thompson was the guy that uh, bailed uh, the hay. He was a salesman for Dave Severson Ford in beautiful Albert Lee. And Ansel Tustison was the guy who uh, bailed or cut the hay with hmm. horses. So, you know, I remember everything but the year. Sure. I don't know why that is, but that's the way life goes. It's uh, it's nicer. I hope, uh, hope we get some nice weather. We deserve some nice yes. weather. I just, uh, our mantra is, you know, boy, I wish it would rain. We just need some rain, and uh, I hope we get some don't like looking at that drought map in the paper about every day. It's in there showing we're always in the the wrong color on that map. So maybe things will go. I know it's uh, as 
humid as it is, and I don't like the humidity, it's probably good for things like corn when it gets humid, when it's really hot, because it um, makes it a little bit less stressful for the corn. I think that's probably true. Hey, thanks, everybody, for uh, sitting on the front porch with us. We needed to name our cat. I'm sure a lot of you have gone through that process. You know, it's it's hard. It's terribly hard to name a kid. It's not easy naming a cat <laughs> or a dog or a, or a bird or a, a hamster or goldfish. It's not easy naming any of those things. We needed to name our cat. It was an orange kitten when it signed the papers and joined the family, and now it started a mouse relocation program. Some of you probably have cats that do this. Yeah. They catch them in the basement, and then they bring them upstairs and set them free. And I thought it was a male because most orange cats are males, but she wasn't a male. I suggested knee-high as a moniker. Um, knee-high, N-E-H-I, is a pop. And knee high makes an orange soda. Oh. And the favorite beverage of Walter Radar O'Reilly, company clerk of the TV series MASH, was grape knee high. And I thought about Sunkist and Crush, those other brands of orange soft drinks, but they didn't sound quite right. I thought nice as in orange unite. That was an epic failure, although if calling... Here, nice, nice, nice. That was attractive. (laughs) But then I thought LRC might work. It's an initialism for little round cat. (laughs) My wife suggested pinky Hmm. because of its pink nose. I did not agree. I thought of Pincus Leff, L-E-F-F. He was known as Pinky Lee. He was host of an Emmy-nominated children's TV program called, oddly enough, The Pinky Lee Show. And I don't know how you decide things in your family. Flip a coin, play rock, paper, scissors. We voted, and I lost in a landslide by a vote of one-to-one. And pinky she is. (laughs) Thanks, everybody, for listening. Do something wild today. Get out there and look at a bird. Thank you, Karen, as always. I enjoyed your company very much. Al, it's always great to talk with you. And uh, hello, pinky. I hope you're doing well. Thanks. Talk to you. Yeah, it seems she's. We we have people here making a lot of noise, and she's uh, she finds all these secret hiding places. I, I don't know how she does it, but she goes and hides in places and we can't find her. So Pinky, be safe. Stay safe. That's what I can say. <laughs> That's right. Thanks, Al. It's always great to have you on, and we'll chat with you next week. Thanks, Karen. Right. Bye bye.